0: By the way, we just worshiped him in the last few moments. We thought about his greatness, and we thought about his love for us. Uh, Thinking about the Lord has consumed those of us who have been embraced by his love, redeemed, and adopted into his family. Uh, But uh, it may come as no surprise to you that there are a whole host of people, unlike us, uh, who make this exclamation, unusual though it may be, no God. There are all too many people, as you know, you may even know some, they may even be in your old household or family. There are many people who declare this particular statement. They believe that there is no God. And there was a person, you know about him, his name is David, who actually wrote about that group of people. I suppose we could call them accurately, atheists. David had something to say about them and We're going to take a look at what he had to say in the next few moments. He wrote his thoughts in Psalm 14, and this is how he began. David said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. In fact, there is not one of them who does good. Hey, can I show you something? Uh, See these four words, there is no God, In the original language, in this case Hebrew, all you would see are these two words, no God. So we could more accurately read this. The fool has said in his heart, no God. That's it. Clear and unembellished. You know where this person stands. This is a person who denies the very existence of the Creator. In fact, this is a person who thinks God and God talk is entirely irrelevant. It's amazing, isn't it, that a person could live his or her life uh, paying no respects to the very giver of life, but again, there are a whole host of people who do, and this is not for me to be insulting, I'm just reading the text, they're called the fool. Those who denied the existence and relevance of God, David's words, he refers to them as the fool. But be careful here. It's not fool as we ordinarily think of it. This is not a comment on a person's intellectual capacity or limited intellectual capacity. No, this is more of a kind of a moral statement. When the Hebrew language uses the word fool, it's essentially saying there's really something wrong, maybe not with that person's mind, but with that person's heart. And they're called a fool. Again, not someone with an intellectual deficit at all. In fact, I want to prove it to you. Uh, Let me just share with you a little bit about some real famous atheists. Maybe you know of some of them. One is Peter Singer. He's a very outspoken atheist. He's brilliant. He's a professor, or at least was, of bioethics at Princeton University, Ivy League School. How about Michael Martin, another famous atheist? He's emeritus professor of philosophy at Boston University. Quentin Smith, famous in the atheist community. He was the university distinguished scholar and professor of philosophy at Western Michigan University worked on a number of different fields, including analytical philosophy and a whole host of other things. Uh, His uh, most significant contribution was uh, probably in the field of the philosophy of quantum cosmology and the philosophy of time. Good night. I'm slurring over the words, let alone being able to grasp what this guy was so easily able to comprehend. So this is no slam on his limited IQ. When David refers to a guy like this as a fool, he's saying, oh no, intellectually, and in terms of IQ, he's winning the race. There's a more serious problem, however, it's with his heart. There's another fella, an atheist, Steven Weinberg, He was the regent's chair in science at the university, listen, close to home, at the University of Texas, right up the road here in Austin. And there he led what was called the theory group in the Department of Physics. In fact, this guy was so brilliant, he won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1979. So please, if we are in any way making a comment on the limited intellectual ability of these atheists... We are out of line. That's not what David is getting at at all. Their problem is more serious than intellect. Now, here are the names of some atheists you may be even more familiar with. Did you know Arian Foster? I don't know if he's still a running back with the Houston Texans. I don't even know if we even have the Houston Texans anymore these days. But at one time, he was a player with Houston, Texas, and Arian Foster, quite a skilled athlete, And quite a bright man uh, is very outspoken. I'm not trying to be insulting. He's quite outspoken about his position. He just does not believe there is a God. How about the British entrepreneur and virgin group founder Sir Richard Branson? Yeah, he's an atheist. CBS News commentator of old, he's deceased now, Andy Rooney was a very outspoken atheist. How about Penn Gillette? Do you know him? He's uh, one half of the uh, duo that did very creative magic, Penn and Taylor. Well, Penn Gillette is a confirmed atheist. Very talented actress, Jodie Foster, who I think is even a graduate of an Ivy League school. She does not believe in the existence of God. Science fiction, if you're into that, I'm not, but maybe if you are, then you know of the gifted science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, atheist. Woody Allen, atheist. Kevin Bacon, Richard Burton, George Carlin. What a gifted uh, comedian of old atheist. Rodney Dangerfield, another comedian, all atheists. Now this goes back... Uh, quite a ways. Marlena Dietrich, if you remember her. Phyllis Diller. Bert Lancaster. I almost literally literally ran into him once. I was in California, and I was there at actually at a Billy Graham conference a function, and I was riding in a car, just riding around in Hollywood, and I made the wrong turn and drove where I wasn't supposed to drive, and there I was face-to-face with a mean-looking guy in a Jaguar. It was Burt Lancaster. I was thrilled. He was not happy at all. Uh, He didn't believe that um, a knucklehead like me would do something like that, and furthermore, he doesn't even believe in the existence of God. How about Larry King? The news, very gifted news uh, interviewer. Larry King is atheist. Bruce Lee, Mr. Karate, didn't believe in God. Bill Maher, still going strong today, denies the existence of God. And very sad and tragic, uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, she also denied the existence of God. Whatever else may be true of these who who I just read to you, let's not cast dispersions on their uh, cognitive ability. They were intelligent and smart people. Many, of course, still are. But they had a big, big problem. And so, see where it says the fool has said in his heart? In Hebrew, uh, that doesn't mean this organ that pumps blood. It actually means mind. Uh, Though their mind had a, a sufficient intellectual capacity to impress anybody, Uh, There was something sick about their minds. The mind which God created, blessed them with... was filled with thoughts denying the very evidence for the existence of God. So they might not even have been ones who would verbalize, vocalize that notion that there is no God. But in effect, in their heart, in their mind, they're saying it. And you can see it by the way they live out their lives as if, once again, God doesn't exist. God is absolutely irrelevant. Leave me alone with all this God talk. There is no God. Now, David says, once again, they're a fool. They're not intellectually disabled. It's kind of a moral kind of a thing. And therefore, uh, David says right here, here's the deal. They are corrupt. Not my words. I'm just reading the words of God. These, brilliant though they may be, uh, by the mere fact that these who are living out their lives as if God doesn't exist are betraying a kind of corruption of their minds, They're corrupt. In fact, they've committed abominable deeds. There's not one of them who does good. That's what the text says. You see, without faith, you know this, it's impossible to please God. Therefore, no faithless person, no matter how brilliant, can be considered to be good in God's eyes. Hence, David writes, there is no one who does good. Not a one of them does as he or she should. Not a one of them thinks or acts as he or she should. Therefore, every one of them, this is tragic, stands in very serious need of the mercy of the very God whose existence they deny. No God. This, then, is the opinion of those whom David refers to as the fool. That's how he refers to them, the fool. Furthermore, David goes on here now in verse 2. Look what is said. The Lord has looked down from heaven. If you're wondering what is God's response, what's his posture with reference to these whom he, the creator, has created, and yet who denies existence, is he indifferent or apathetic about it? Oh, no. The Lord has looked down from heaven. Verse 2 says upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And here you see a very quick, ready contrast between those who understand. You see, in contrast to those who in the prior verse are considered fools. Uh, So God sees two different kinds of people. One is a fool. He's not seeking after God. But the other one understands. He's not self-generated. That person understands Every time he looks at his belly button, I didn't get here on my own for crying out loud. I owe my existence to outside help, namely Almighty God. That one understands to such an extent that he seeks after God. And this text says that God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any in that particular category who understand that the essence of life sufficiently to invest their life, to devote their life in the seeking after the giver of life. Now, you see these two words, to see? You know what the original uh, sense really is? It's pretty cool, I'll tell you. It's the sense of bending forward. It's as if Almighty God, transcendent deity, the great beyond, who has no beginning nor any end, end. The one who's apart from the space-time dimension peers into it. Look look how he does it. He's leaning into it. He's bending. He's bending. Look, you're at an airport. Someone, a relative, a friend from afar is about to arrive. There's a whole crowd of people waiting for their friends or loved ones to arrive, but you're interested in only one in particular, and so you're, you're moving. You're bending. You're jockeying for position. You're focused on one particular. You're looking for one person in the crowd. That's the sense here. Almighty God is not indifferent to our response to him or lack of response to him. I should say. And so he's bending hes bending into our puny little existence because it's important to him. He's bending forward and he's looking into it, the goal being to find someone who understands enough to seek after him. And I find it fascinating, maybe you will as well, to see that God is not bending forward so as to find rich people, Or smart people. He's not bending forward so as to find white people or black people or old people or young people or male or female people. No, no. Uh, The object of his very deliberate and intentional search is for people who have sufficient understanding so as to seek after him. You know what I hope? I hope you're one of them. That's what I hope. And so David goes on here in verse 3. Look what he says. They have all, again speaking to that group of people who denied the existence of God, they've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt there's no one who does good, not even one. See the word corrupt? It means sour, like milk. You buy fresh milk, and yet in a few days it turns sour. These are people who, in their quest to deny the existence of God, have corrupted. They, they've spoiled. They've soured the very reason why they're here, which is to know God and to make him known. They've spoiled the very essence of the purpose of their, of their lives, Now, let me ask you this question. We've developed this theme, this no God theme for enough time such that maybe the question is in your mind, what exactly would be the benefit of denying the existence of God? What do you get out of it? Why would you even want to do that? What's the payoff? Well, I'll tell you. Folks, if there is no God, there's no accountability. That means you could do whatever you want to do. There's no judgment day. There's nobody greater than you really to answer to. No final accounting time. If it feels good to you, do it. Folks, that's very attractive, tempting, very enticing. Hence the no God philosophy. Furthermore, if there is no God, you can assume the position. If there's no master greater than you, you could be the master of your own destiny. Now face it. That's not a repulsive notion. You and I have lived that way, haven't we, uh, until we came to meet Christ. We then at that point dethroned ourselves, but until then we were on the throne of our own lives. We, in essence, were practical atheists. There is no God, we said. I will be the master of my own destiny and life. And so you see this no-God philosophy does have a payoff. And so people who deny the existence of God deny there's evidence for his existence. It drives people like you and I crazy because we think there's plenty of evidence for his existence and we wonder why this group of people can't find God. Can I tell you why? Atheists can't find God for the same reason burglars can't find cops. They don't want to. Are you kidding me? That's the reason. So David goes on. To develop the theme in verse 4, do all the workers of wickedness, is what the text says, not know who eat up my people, God is speaking, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord. So the wickedness of those who refuse to seek God, here's how it is most evident, they eat up God's people. Why would the atheist want to eat up, devour, consume God's people? I'll tell you why. Because the best evidence of the existence of God can be found by observing the transformed lives of the people of God. In fact, that's something, that notion is very important to us here at Sagemont. We are to be living proof of a loving God, you see, to a watching world. And so the atheist has a real interest in consuming and devouring God's people so as to snuff out Exhibit A, your Exhibit A, so am I. So they want to extinguish the evidence of God that comes from God's people. And so the text goes on to say in verse 5, there they are in great dread for God is with the righteous generation. So, look, folks, to attack God's people, do you know this? Is to attack God. That's just how closely He has put Himself and allowed us to be in association. To attack God's people is to attack God, and therefore He responds. As a result, those who deny God, uh, they're actually on the inside, not calm. In their denial of God, they may come across self assured and confident, but that's not really the case. On the inside, there's disarray. In fact, there's great dread. That's what it says here great dread. Why? Because God is with the righteous. And as a result, even the most uh, seemingly confident atheist really horribly lacks a sense of inner peace. There's something in them. I think it's God graciously allowing it to be that worries them. They are persuading themselves there is no God and that therefore they owe him no accountability, but on the inside, they're really worried about it. In fact, there's great dread You see, the atheist, no matter how brilliant, and in spite of his or her best efforts, cannot get rid of the evidence for the fact that there is a God. You are the evidence. So am I. So in spite of all their efforts, those who deny the existence of God find that there is... um, evidence for the very existence of the God they seek to deny, and it presses upon them, it squeezes them, and on the inside, as it says, they are in great dread. Verse 6, now God speaks directly to that kind of person. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. And so here, it is if God is saying, y- you have a reason to be in great dread. The prior verse spoke about that. Here, God is substantiating it. You have a reason to be afraid. Why? You put the shame, the counsel of the afflicted. See, the afflicted. Uh, the word is actually a reference to the poor, not necessarily those who are economically poor. It's a reference to those who have put all their eggs in one basket, if you will. They put all their trust in the Creator, in Almighty God. They're leaning on nobody else. They don't have plan B. There is no backup plan. They fully and entirely uh, depend upon Almighty God. In that sense, they're poor with reference to the alternatives to God, none of which they have embraced. And so uh, God is saying, you have Put yourself upon these kinds of people, those who have put their faith in me. And you have reason to be afraid because it says here, I, the Lord, uh, I am his refuge. Those who seek refuge in almighty God will not be ashamed. Even those who deny God are seeking to shame them. So God is essentially saying, you've demeaned my people and you've despised them. You've mocked them and you've persecuted them. But they're my people. Therefore, you have good reason to be in fear. And then our final verse, and I'm pleased that God wrote this because we get to end on an uh, unbelievably hopeful note. Oh, says David, oh, that the salvation, did you know what the Hebrew word is for salvation? This word here, salvation. It's the same root word from we get the word Jesus. It's Yeshua. We could read this. Oh, that the Jesus of Israel would come out of Zion, a reference to Jerusalem. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Here's David, one who with understanding put his stock in the Lord made himself a devoted seeker of Almighty God in spite of his flaws and knew he was securely in God's embrace. David was put upon as were, as are all those who put their trust in Christ. But he didn't lament. He looked forward to the day when God would establish his kingdom on earth, namely when Yeshua, the Lord Jesus, the salvation of Israel would return, establish his kingdom here on earth and in Zion, in Jerusalem. David looked forward to this day, to David the best was yet to come. He looked forward to a time in spite of persecution of Christians on all levels, in all places, even today, In spite of that, David would have us know there is coming a time of great joy for the people of God and those of us who by his grace have been enabled to put our faith in him. Here's the point, we'll not be disappointed, not at all. There will be a time of great vindication, of great rejoicing for all who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. No matter what is happening around us, Attach yourself to these truths. Jesus is coming again. If you are his, if you responded right to his first coming, you got nothing to worry about his second coming. You should look forward to it. The present day is weighty, burdensome, and uncertain. But the future for the people of God is very, very bright. Do not despair. Keep looking up, for our salvation may be drawing near. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the hope we have in spite of the circumstances which are burdensome to us and all people today. Thank you, oh God, for making yourself accessible and available to those of us who by your grace have an understanding enough to know, oh, we ought to seek you. We ought to make you our refuge, our very present help in time of need. And in spite of what God deniers may say or do, You will represent us, and one day we'll be vindicated. We look forward to that great day, and until that happens, we want to be exhibit A for those people who are still denying you but may be ushered into the faith when they see you being real and alive in our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.